You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. With all due respect to F. Scott Fitzgerald and Garrison Keillor, the Twin Cities' most notable literary export is probably Charles M. Schultz, the creator of the beloved comic strip Peanuts. Hundreds of millions of readers have delighted in the almost 18,000 strips created over the course of almost 50 years, not to mention the many animated television specials, movies, amusement parks, and marketing ephemera. And it doesn't take much familiarity with Peanuts to recognize that Christianity informed that strip to a degree unusual for newspaper comics. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profile, Stephen J. Lind, has written a book that chronicles Schultz's complicated relationship with faith. That book, A Charlie Brown Religion, Exploring the Spiritual Life and Work of Charles M. Schultz, is out now from University of Press of Mississippi, and I'm delighted it's brought him here today. Thanks for coming on the show, Stephen. Oh, thank you so much. The project continues to be such a joy to have worked on and to talk about, so I'm thrilled to be with you. Well, I'd like to start uh, with your personal history with the subject, if you don't mind. Uh, you're a professor of business communication at Washington and Lee University. That is not the job title I would have imagined would have produced <laughs> this book. Uh, what sparked your interest in Schultz's religious beliefs, and how did you decide to write a book about them? Well, I have been a fan of the Peanuts franchise of Charlie Brown and Snoopy, like millions of people, since I was a young child. The, um, the animated specials, especially A Charlie Brown Christmas, really... Uh, provided the entry point for me into the franchise. And as I began my scholarly career, I had um, gotten degrees in communication studies. And I, over the years, would occasionally use Charlie Brown as an example to think through some more complicated thought about communication or about philosophy. And as I progressed in my career, I had the wonderful opportunity to meet uh, Charles Schultz's family, which, um, you know, if you were to tell 12-year-old me that I would have that opportunity, I really wouldn't know what to do, uh, do with that uh, information. Uh, but it was such a wonderful opportunity, and they shared some wonderful insights and stories and gave me access to materials that really allowed me to see the book. And once I could see the project, I couldn't not write it. And so the work I do in the business program really teaches the students how to think through sharing messages with diverse audiences. And that has really provided a great springboard for thinking about how Charles Schultz shared his unique message with a wide array of audiences. Yeah, I, I can see that connection. Uh, as I said, Peanuts is one of the most beloved comic strips of all time, if not the most beloved. And, and in fact, it may be one of the most beloved cultural artifacts of all time. It really is. It is a rare property that avoids most criticism. I mean, folks love Barbie and folks love uh, Disney, but there are also some very strong criticisms of Barbie or G.I. Joe or Disney or insert property here. There are some folks who maybe don't love Peanuts, but it avoids most of the hardest criticism and it gains so much wonderful adoration from so many folks. What do you think is responsible for the universal acclaim? Why, do, why, do people, why are people so attached to it? That's a really good question, and it's an important question for understanding how Schultz was able to talk about religion in his strip. One of the key features, there are a number of key features, but one of the key features to Schultz's success has been his open style of writing, along with his open style of drawing. Now, he had a lot go really going for him that he kind of had working all in great synergy together. He had, you know, clever, uh, clever character um, creations. You know, the, the characters themselves had unique personalities, and he had just a, um, a witty style about his voice. But I really find the openness to be a key factor in why so many people can really gravitate towards the property without much criticism. And it's because Schultz wrote and draw in a way that asks you to put yourself in the strip, asks you to interpret it uh, from your own point of view, allow, asking you to really allow yourself to be part of the Peanuts gang. And that has really connected with readers for, uh, well, more than half a century now. Am I misremembering that Scott McCloud actually uses Charlie Brown as his example in uh, Understanding Comics when he talks about how comic strip characters are drawn relatively simply so that you can project yourself into them? I believe that you're, I believe you're right about that being his example. Uh, it, it certainly is, and it, Peanuts certainly is an exemplary case where there is comparatively little ink on the page. Um, Schultz was 
something of a revolutionary on the newspaper page when he introduced Peanuts. Um, he was importing something of a magazine editorial cartoon style onto the newspaper page. So when I've gone through, for instance, some of the old newspaper funnies spreads from the uh, early 1950s, Schultz's work is one of the few places where you can actually see the newspaper. Everywhere else has just ink filling the, filling the comic panels, but Schultz had a very deft hand at using minimalism to say quite a bit. Did he, is he responsible? Because, I mean, that is, that is the way almost all newspaper comics look now, all that empty mm-hmm. space. He's the one who did that? He is not the only one, but he did it the most successfully and in, with the, perhaps the most revolutionary voice in conjunction with that artistic style. So others were doing that same style in magazine editorials. Uh, very few were doing it on the newspaper page. Walt Disney had some comic strips at the time that were similar. So Donald Duck comic strips in the um, early 1950s share a very similar what we might call cartoony and simpler style of line, anim- uh, line illustration. Um, Schultz was much more minimal than nearly all on the page, though, and he was he connected so well with readers that he very quickly became the standard for effective minimalist design. We're certainly a long way from like Crazy Cat or uh, Little Nemo in Dreamland stuff. The the really old comics are just mm. super super. Uh, well, I don't know even how to say it. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of background detail. Right. So if you look at, say, an old Tarzan comic, there is it's, it's like uh, almost it's, it's very naturalist in its uh, illustration style where it's as if you're drawing a real tree. Whereas with Charlie Brown, there's two little lines for the trunk and then a squiggly line to make the, the, the leaves. And that's all you get. And it, it, it's really effective, though, because Schultz's line style wasn't wasn't the line style of uh, a grade schooler. It was the line style of a trained artist. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it must have been easier and quicker to, to do it that way, too. And when you're pumping out 18,000 strips over 50 years, saving that extra hour and a half per strip must be worthwhile. For sure. Real, real bonus to his style was that he could have a, a daily strip, uh, whereas if he were to have a more complicated strip uh, artistically, he would not be able to have such the quick turnaround in his production, at least not without perhaps help from other artists, which many, many comic strip artists employ others to do uh, maybe the coloring or to do the background illustration or to do the lettering. And Charles Schultz, uh, until his very, very last uh, last days where he simply couldn't physically do it anymore, Charles Schultz did 100% of the work himself. Well, let's talk about Schultz himself. Uh, he was raised apathetically Lutheran in the Twin Cities. After his service in World War II, he begins attending a Church of God, and he becomes serious about his faith. What did this newfound piety have to do with his military service? Like many individuals, when Schultz came back from military service, he really uh, found it a challenge to establish a, a new normal in his life, and that is an experience that many veterans have. And for Schultz, it was a very real experience. When he was back in the States, he started to establish a few different communities. He began working at Art Instruction Incorporated, which is actually the school where he had learned some of his line art through correspondence drawing courses. They're the ones with the Draw Me advertisement. Uh, We draw the little pirate, the little teddy bear in the newspaper. Um, He had learned through them, and he began teaching for them. Uh, He also, in at, at the same time he was developing a community there, he found a community in his uh, local church of God. And while he was establishing, trying to establish this new normal, while he really was still trying to, um, to learn how to cope with the anxiety that being in the war produced, the sense of community really was a cherished and valuable thing for him. And so the church of God that he found uh, just a couple blocks over was a place where he could really um, connect with real people that quickly became friends and really put him on the path to finding his own faith. Um, what can you tell me about his military service? He didn't see battle or see combat. Is that correct? He saw very, uh, very little combat of any variety. Um, never was in a, a direct um, serious gunfire with anyone. It was uh, all things considered a very um, comparatively 
I don't want to say safe time over in the European theater, but he saw very little direct action, um, which is not to say that it was not a still a very intense um, and anxiety and dangerous scenario, but he was um, uh, he, he was thankful years later for not having had a more trying time. The real trauma of his military services, his mother died while he was away, is that correct? His mother died right before he, um, or right as he was leaving for um, the Fort Snelling, which was a nearby fort to begin his enlistment. And so he um, said goodbye to her right before he boarded the train, and she died shortly thereafter. And that was a very, a very impactful part of his life. Uh, the loss of a mother is meaningful to anyone. The loss of a mother right as you're enlisting in the military service, that, that can't not affect you. Yeah, and so, I mean, it makes sense on some level that he would come back and be drawn to the church. Which, sure. Which must have functioned as a, a kind of replacement family for him. It was a, a real community. He he met some really wonderful folks in the church that uh, just had some really nice, you know, kind of Midwestern sensibilities about them. And Schultz himself had um, always had a certain clean living lifestyle. So he didn't smoke, he didn't drink, and he didn't uh, use foul language. And that was not really because of any particular spiritual um, or religious dogma, but rather it was just kind of how he was wired. And so when he came back, not only was he... Um, as anyone would be um, in need of community, but he happened to find a community that just kind of fit his hardwiring, and so it worked out rather well for him. Yeah, talk about being prepared for the Church of God. So true. Um, you you say in the book that one of the reasons he was drawn to the Church of God is that its members tended to conceive of it as a tradition rather than a denomination. What did he find so distasteful about denominations? Because that is a theme that comes up over and over again. Denominationalism is one of the places in Schultz's work where you will find his most pointed statements uh, about what he does not care for in spirituality. Uh, Charles Schultz grew up in an era really of strident denominationalism where you'd find across the Twin Cities some folks who really held very strongly to their Catholic faith and Catholic, Catholic borders, whereas others would hold very strongly to, say, their Lutheran faith and their Lutheran borders. And Schultz just really uh, disliked exclusion of any variety. He did not like being told or he did not like hearing that others were being told rather that they didn't, they did not belong. And so when he would hear that a church was a group that was telling someone you don't belong with us or we're, we, we believe something that is right and you have it all wrong. That just really struck a negative chord with Schultz. So when he found the church of God, who, like you said, did not characterize itself as a denomination, they, like, like to see themselves as maybe something like a movement, um, that that was an opportunity for Schultz to uh, find a community that that just fit with him. It, it fit what he had already previously uh, believed about inclusion over exclusion, and it just it, it worked out well that for him it was also um, part of a faith tradition that um, could lead him to even further thoughts about this idea of inclusion. And he never joined another church, isn't that right? He he did not join another church. After they left Minnesota, his family left um, Minnesota um, and moved to California. There was not a church of God uh, locally for him once they moved uh, about an hour north of San Francisco. But there was a local um, a local man who came by to say hello to the new folks who moved in, and he invited them to... Uh, come and visit their church, which happened to be a Methodist church. And so Schultz figured, well, sure, I'll, I'll, uh, we'll give it a whirl. And they visited, and he found a good home in their Sunday school. So he never formally joined that Methodist church, but he was very active in it for a, a solid decade. But that's another way of avoiding the denominations, I suppose. Sure, yeah. By not, by not joining a church, you don't have to uh, actively say, I am part of this group and I'm not part of this group, because Schultz believed more broadly that uh, that belief in God and maybe even beyond just belief in God would make you part of the the kingdom of God, more universally speaking. And so there was there was no value for him in joining a church and getting any sort of membership card. 
Well, an important point you make is that Peanut's treatment of Christianity was something virtually unheard of in the newspaper comics at the time. And that, that could be hard for us to keep in mind because we're used to Peanuts and also to the other mainstream comics that talk about religion, BC or mm-hmm. Mallard Fillmore or things that do it, I think, much less intelligently than Peanuts does. Mm. Um, what did newspaper comics look like before Peanuts in terms of their religious content? And, and what did Schultz bring to his tri- strip? What, what in particular was unusual? Prior to Schultz, the newspaper comic strip industry was one where you simply did not mention religion at all. It wasn't that there were, was a particular variety of religious conversations that happened um, in a particular way. The truth was that religious conversations simply did not happen on the newspaper page. And that was because, um, in, in many ways, because newspaper comics were seen as a means to sell newspapers. The, the history of newspaper comics is one where they grew out of an era where there was some really strong competition between newspapers. And one newspaper had illustrations and the other ones didn't. And all of a sudden, those pe- newspapers were selling better. So uh, the competing newspaper said, well, we should have some sort of cartoon of our own. And so that that mentality really persisted into the mid-20th century. So when Schultz enters the scene then, he and his colleagues had a very strong sense that they were um, – they, their job was to help help sell papers. They also wanted to make people laugh, but their job really was to help sell newspapers, which meant you don't talk about taboo things like religion. For instance, when Schultz first mentions his um, – the first time he has the the children mention the birth of Christ in a Christmas pageant strip in the in the Peanuts comic, on the, across the whole spread that day in some papers, for instance, let's say the Chicago Tribune, across the whole spread of the Chicago Tribune in that day in uh, I believe it was 1958, there were no references at all to the religious aspect of Christmas except for one Christmas carol playing in the background of a Dick Tracy comic strip. And so Schultz is the, literally the only one on the page mentioning the birth of Christ at Christmas of all times. And uh, that's simply because it was an industry that said, keep quiet on things that might turn off our readers. It's so funny, though, because we, we think of that era as being the time of Christian consensus. Mm. And, and in fact, it's not until, well, almost until the 60s that we get any sort of religious faith represented in the comics page at all. That's so true. And even in the 1960s, we still have an entertainment media environment where many executives are really concerned about making mainstream products that will reference religion because they were afraid that the denominational uh, aspect of American culture will make it so that no matter what you say, you will offend someone, which is, I would argue, and I think Schultz is a good good proof, um, that that is not necessarily true. You can mention religion without upsetting large swaths of people. But let's say um, the mid, even in the mid-60s, we sometimes like to look at that as the, the golden era where you used to be able to talk about religion back in the good old days. Well, in 1965, when our Charlie Brown Christmas came out, there were less, less than 10% of, of shows on television that would reference that had any substantive reference to religion at Christmas time. I mean, this is Christmas time, so if there's any time in the year you're going to have religion, it will be Christmas time. But when Charlie, a Charlie Brown Christmas hits the scene, less than 10% do. And that's because even in that so-called golden era, we still have an American culture that is not sure how to talk about religion in public. Well, let's talk about a Charlie Brown Christmas then, because I think that's a lot of people's first major exposure to, uh, to Peanuts. Um, I watch that special every year, as I'm sure many of our listeners do. I'm always amazed at how well it holds up. What mm. makes what makes a Charlie Brown Christmas so evergreen, if you'll pardon the terrible pun? <laughs> really, what, what I see as making it work is the exact set of uh, characteristics that the studio executives thought would make it be a failure. Uh-huh. <laughs> so a, a Charlie, which is just wild to think about, a Charlie Brown Christmas really grew out of failure. They... Um, created a documentary, Schultz and a couple creative partners created a documentary about Schultz's comic strip work and tried to sell it, and they, it failed to sell. Nobody bought it. But like a year and a half later, they got a call from an ad agency that said, we still don't want to buy that documentary, but we have a client, you may have heard of them, Coca-Cola, who would like a Christmas special. Have you ever thought of doing a Christmas special with the Peanuts characters, maybe animated? 
And Lee Mendelson, the producer who had worked with Schultz on the documentary, said, well, sure, sounds great, no problem, even though they had never talked about it before. <laughs> well, you got to strike while the iron's hot. Exactly, exactly. And they really did, over the course of a weekend, they put together the plans for their show, which would include a story of a Christmas tree, it would include um, the, the little kids having a Christmas pageant and reciting from the Gospel of Luke. And when they put it together, then over a couple months of actually producing the show, they decided to include real children as opposed to professional voice actors. And, and that, they, is, that is the stroke of genius to me. Absolutely. Some of those I, performances are just they're, they're like no, no professional actor ever could have done it. And in fact, as you go through the animated specials through time, you see the uh, you see the children becoming more and more professionally coached, and the, the mm-hmm. performances get worse. There's nothing there's nothing as funny to me as when Sally says, uh, "All I want is what I what I have coming to me." She she drops the line, but it's so <laughs> perfect. Yep. And at the same point, she says, "You write it, and I'll tell them what I want to say." <laughs> right, right. It's just it's exactly how a kid would actually say it. Mm-hmm. And the way that worked is actually that the director fed the lines piece by piece to these untrained child actors. And so the reason there's that break, there's a reason to drop in the the line is because it's t- two halves of two, uh, two <laughs> takes that they had to splice together. Oh, that's excellent. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And so that, there's that real kind of raw authenticity that went into the voice acting, went into this very limited style of animation, um, along with a, a, a really rather simple and honest storyline that just it holds up over time. There's no there's no glitz and glamour about the program that that makes it stick to any one era it's simple it's it's clean and it's lightweight in a really profound way that allows it to persist year after year other than the reference to the pink aluminum christmas trees (laughs) that's true which really um a charlie brown christmas has been credited as being the um the the reason the artificial (laughs) christmas tree industry went down which it's not schultz and his team were actually poking fun at the artificial tree industry that uh, many were already poking fun at but it the show was so successful that the reference to shiny aluminum Christmas trees really has become an iconic criticism of of that industry. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the soundtrack too. The Vince Guaraldi score is just one of the one of I think it, one of everybody's favorite Christmas albums. It really is wonderful music. Except and for Schultz. That the <laughs> the studios did not did not love the idea of using jazz music because this was supposed to be an animated program and kids and were supposed to watch this as a part of a family program. So why would you use jazz music? But Schultz always had a sophisticated approach to his work that he wanted to elevate his art. And this was their first animated special, which meant that the franchise was not as much of a, a kiddie franchise quite yet. Schultz had always drawn the comic strips for an adult audience because adults were the ones who would read, read and buy the newspaper. So when they made their first television special, he still had this sophisticated, elevated approach, which meant that jazz music made sense. And personally, I'm glad they chose jazz music because I just love Vince Guaraldi's work. Well, and, and, I mean, you, you talk about it being for adults, but I mean, that is a Christmas special about being depressed at Christmas, mm-hmm. which I, it's it's amazing to me that, that kids love the show, although I know they do, because it, it, it seems like such an adult concern. It really is such an adult concern, and that is kind of the beauty of Schultz's work. He he draws in a funny and accessible way that allows a kid to chuckle at the, the silly jokes and to chuckle at the silly characters, and it, he also writes and draws in a way that allows an adult reader or viewer to get the weight of his of his ideas. You don't get spoon-fed spoon any answers, but you sure are lobbed a heavy, a heavy subject to consider if you're willing to consider it. Well, it's a common place to treat It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, as the other side of a dialectical pair with mm. Charlie Brown Christmas. If the Christmas special is about faith, says this interpretation, the Halloween special is about doubt. My impression from your book is you don't really agree with that interpretation, at least not if it goes so far as to paint Great Pumpkin as uh, proof of Schultz's growing doubt and skepticism toward religion. Am I right about that? You are right about that. I do see them as two two parts to um, maybe a conundrum, but the conundrum was one that is solved by saying they are not in conflict, but rather they are two parts to the same whole. Schultz doubted. Schultz absolutely doubted. And so the reading or viewing 
It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, as a message about about faith potentially not being always something that's fulfilled is an accurate reading. Schultz believed that some faiths were misguided and sometimes we simply don't know all of the answers. But he believed that because he also believed. So A Charlie Brown Christmas came out in 1965 and that is a statement from Schultz saying, I believe. And It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, came out just one year later in 1966 where he says, not only do I believe, but I simultaneously doubt. And I doubt because I believe. He was a very well-studied man. He had read his Bible many times over. And the more he read and the more he studied, the, he, he still believed. But he also learned that there are some answers that I just, I just don't know. Of course, the uh, television productions don't stop with Charlie Brown Christmas and Great Pumpkin. You have an appendix in your book. I did not bother to count. Uh, how many cartoons are in there? It is dozens of dozens. If you, sh- include, if you include each, if you include each of the Saturday morning specials as individual titles, which you might as well because they're each twenty minutes long, then there are seventy-five animated Peanuts titles, seventy-six with the new movie that came out this past year, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, but there must be a wide range of quality in that. You've watched them all. Uh, which specials are worth tracking down beyond? Uh, the Christmas one and the Halloween one. Well, the Christmas one and the Halloween one are the two that I will continue to watch over and over again, long after I'm past the, the, the Peanuts research phase. Uh-huh. I happen to find um, Why Charlie Brown Why to be another really important special to consider. It's a special in which the children uh, deal with the question of one of their friends having cancer. And that is a really heavy subject that... Um, the special does not deal with necessarily perfectly, but it deals with it really, really well. And there's a, a sacred hymn farther along that is included in that special hmm. that uh, was a, a daughter of a church friend who sang it uh, on the special at, at Schultz's specific request. And the song is just really this exemplary moment where um, you want to have hope and faith even during the tough times. And so the message to the children uh, is both an understanding that sickness is, is difficult and um, it's, it's, it can be sad. And at times one can hopefully find faith and hope as well. I had not heard of that one before I read your book, I must admit. Um, I, you know, I don't know how many of these, I remember I have a vague memory of watching You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. They must have made a, a cartoon out of the, the Broadway show. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that as a kid, and and my wife and I watch uh, the Thanksgiving. Is it just Happy Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown? Oh, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the, those are the other ones I know, but there there's just so many of them. How many of them are even available commercially? Nearly all of them are available now. Um, they've been releasing them on DVD and digital download over the last couple years. For my research, I allowed nostalgia to trump my efficiency, and so <laughs> I have. I have collected them all on VHS, which, <laughs> which is not the most efficient way of doing research because if I want to go back and watch a scene, I have to rewind it as opposed to just clicking the, you know, the scroll bar right. a little bit to the left. But there's uh, probably but so no I, better way to watch them than on VHS. There is no better way to watch them on VHS until your VCR breaks. That's true. Uh, I've, I went through, I think, five VCRs while writing the book. Wow. <laughs> They're not easy to find anymore, I imagine. No, and it's not easy to find someone to fix VCR anymore, so... <laughs> Uh, I've got a stack of dead VCRs in my in in my closet. Um, while we're at it, you mentioned the movie. Um, mm-hmm. they, they they attempted last year to bring Peanuts to a new generation. It was a computer animated movie. I didn't see it. I had assumed it was terrible, but uh, <laughs> when I was when I was reading your book, I looked it up and it got eighty seven percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm missing something. Did you did you see that movie? I did. I was absolutely there opening night. I I honestly was. Um, I, I tried. To, I tried to avoid being optimistic about the movie because, as such a, a longtime fan and a, a deep researcher and kind of a, a peanuts purist, I expected to likewise be probably disappointed in the movie because it's so difficult. The bar is so high that it's so difficult to live up to the magic of a franchise that you that has been such a beloved franchise, personally and kind of universally for so long. I happen to really enjoy the special, in particular because of the artwork. The artwork was one of the components I was most concerned about because making it into a computer-generated uh, 3D 
uh, style was seemingly in contradiction to everything Schultz did with this really simple, minimalist, flat style that had so much open space. But truth be told, I found that the animators did a really, really beautiful job at making Charlie Brown into um, something for a contemporary medium. Now, I would be perfectly fine with them doing a limited animation special all over again, but the artwork really was beautiful and cinematic and sweeping, um, and that, for me, was enough of a reason to come away happy from the movie. I don't know exactly how this works, but I heard that the uh, the little swipe of hair on Charlie Brown's head is actually Schultz's pencil drawing. Oh, very well. Maybe they spent a very long time uh, studying Schultz's line art. Uh, so they camped out at his actual studio uh, north of San Francisco in Santa Rosa, and they studied his line art so that the way that they used the computer could best replicate some of the literal moves that Schultz did and certainly the spirit of what he did. And so some of the animators, uh, as they were working, talked about trying to beat the perfection out of the computer because the computer wanted to be all glossy and perfect and symmetrical. And that's not how Schultz drew with a pen on paper. And I, I find that they achieved that artistic goal rather well. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to find it when it comes out on video. Uh, does the film treat religion at all? There is, I won't give any spoilers, but there is one, uh, there's one moment near the end where one might potentially find, depending on how you tilt your head, you might find a, uh, a religious reference that might actually speak rather well to, uh, how I approach questions in the book as well. All right. Well, I'll have to see it to figure out what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, returning to Schultz's biography, uh, it is well known. He taught Sunday school for many years. You mentioned that earlier too. What was he like as a Sunday school teacher? Charles Schultz was very deliberate about his approach to Sunday school. He really disliked being called the Sunday school teacher. Uh, he preferred to um, say that he led a group or that he was part of a group of Sunday school members for many years. Um, he would plan the lessons and he would have notes that um, of the lessons he wanted to talk about. Uh, what they did, though, logistically, was they simply read through the Bible. Charles Schultz was very adamant that if someone is going to believe something from the, Bi the Bible, they ought to know where it is in the Bible that it says such and such is true. And so to that end, Schultz and his Sunday school group members simply read through the Bible, and they read through it many times together. And he would simply stop them every now and then, and they would chat about what a passage means, and he might ask a question or two, maybe offering an insight from his commentaries. But he was more, more of a facilitator. Of a, of a Bible study than any um, teacher of any sort of seminary class. Why did he ultimately stop leading that group? He Charles Schultz was in the church for uh, nearly two decades, leading and being part of groups of Sunday school groups um, in both the Church of God and in the Methodist Church. And when he ultimately left the Methodist Church, it was during um, a particular time in his life when both his career was extra busy, which at one, as one can imagine it would be, and when, uh, during a time where he was having some um, uh, difficult times in his own family life. And so there were, there's not necessarily a direct causality between either of those things and his time leaving church, but the, uh, the combination of being very busy and being, um, uh, going through a, a, a marital transition, um, he, was, he uh, got divorced and also got remarried around the same time that he left the church. And I, I wouldn't want to go say, so far as to say that one necessarily caused the other, but it was definitely a trying time. And it's, it's, it's not surprising, looking back historically, it's not surprising that he left the church around that time. He, he was a pretty private guy. Did he ever talk about the, the collapse of his first marriage publicly? Uh, very, very minimally. Uh, he did not like to discuss personal things um, much at all. Even with family, he was... Uh, he was pretty reserved. He didn't like. To, he did not like to give advice. He um, liked to ask a lot of questions, but he was not one to divulge all about his personal life to um, even to, even sometimes to, to to friends, let alone to a reporter. Um, the way his children have uh, described the relationship with their between their mother and their father, Charles Schultz, and his first wife, their mom. Um, I think his son maybe summed it up best when uh, – his oldest son, when he said that they were 
Uh, it was like they were on parallel lines that would never meet. Um, and that, that, that from all of the friends and family that I spoke with, that descri- description really rang true as an explanation of how two very um, clever and uh, keenly incited individuals eventually found themselves getting a divorce. I heard a rumor once that Lucy Van Pelt is based on Schultz's first wife. Do you know if that's true or not? Charles Schultz drew the comics for 50 years, and so he was drawing comics really uh, out of inspiration from all aspects of his life. And there are some connections between his first wife and Lucy. There are some connections between his first daughter um, and Lucy as well. And then there are some parts of Lucy that are really from him. Uh, he would say later in life that um, he wanted to make Lucy less sarcastic because he himself was trying to be less sarcastic in his life. <laughs> there are definitely some similarities, but it is, it's a bit of a misnomer to say that any one character um, is directly related to a specific individual in Schultz's life. If anything, the characters are most directly related to Charles Schultz himself. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, if you, you you quote him in the in your book as saying that people assume he's Charlie Brown, mm-hmm. but but the implication being he's not, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, Charlie Brown is a lot of Charles Schultz, and Charles Schultz shares a lot in common with Charlie Brown. But Charles Schultz also shares a lot in common with Linus, and shares quite a bit in common uh, with Schroeder as well, and and likewise the other characters. Well, I want to talk a little bit about his faith as it related to his family. Mm. Um, he was at various stages in his career a very devout Christian, and yet, as your book points out, he didn't really seem to make much of an attempt to share his faith with his children. Uh, is that a generational thing, or is it something more specific to him? I, it, like that, that surprised me. It, it, looking back historically, that surprised some of his family members as well. They would think back historically and. Uh, wonder out loud with me as I was chatting with them researching the book. They would say, I wonder why dad did not tell me about such and such. Or isn't it interesting that he never said such and such to us kids about you know such and such passage in the Bible? That he had a good relationship with his kids, but it is uh, I, I see it as a, a part of his personal part of his personality that he wasn't really one to tell anyone what to do, and he. That, that transferred over into the way he interacted with, with his children on faith. If they were going to come to faith, they, he wanted them to come to it on their own, not because he had preached to them. And individuals in and out of faith communities will take different stances on whether or not his approach to faith and rearing his children was a good one or a bad one. Um, it was one that he was pretty consistent with throughout most of uh, the, the children uh, time going the children's times growing up one thing that allowed him to do was to to be very supportive of his daughter Amy when she converted to mormonism a religion he didn't really approve of but because he because he gave her so much space to work things out for herself you know he he wasn't overbearing in his uh in his in, he didn't try to control her or anything when she became a mormon Right, and there's a the chapter in the book that tells the story of Amy's finding of the Mormon faith and her conversion and her father's reception was really a, a special thing for me to be able to write, and it was uh, possible because, um, well, largely because Amy was so willing to be open about that passage uh, in her life, as were you know her siblings offered some really good insights as, and and friends offered insights as well. And it is a, this really kind of special time between Amy and her father where she strikes out on her own path. And it's a path that he does not uh, see eye to eye with her on. But because of his overall openness, they're able to find a place of connection nonetheless that is perhaps more special than had they never gone on that journey at all. And you, you quote several of their very moving letters to each other about it. Yeah, there is a real... Um, special bond between father and daughter that is demonstrated in these wonderful letters that he sent to he sent to Amy, and in many of them he references his views on faith in really moving and powerful ways. The listeners just have to buy the book to uh, to read this. <laughs> uh, one of the most striking aspects of Peanuts to me is how sad it frequently is. Uh, it's not a surprise to learn that Schultz suffered from depression and anxiety throughout his life. How did those emotional states affect his faith? 
really interesting question. Uh, Charles Schultz was um, a person who was often melancholy. He was often um, uh, he was often searching for, um, or maybe I shouldn't say searching, um, but he was often uh, he often questioned whether or not certain relationships were as strong as he really hoped they would be. He questioned whether or not um, he was really as valued as an, uh, as an artist as he wanted to be. Um, and that was because he had kind of a persistent melancholy state that would uh, kind of rear its head every now and then. And when it came to his faith then, that in some ways is um, synonymous to this question of faith and doubt where his faith allowed him to have hope beyond doubt but he could never get past the doubt itself um, and uh, faith his his christian his christian faith his view on his relationship to god through his understanding of the bible really gave him a sense of security at some important parts of his life but he also at the same time would never fully shake the belief that there were things he just did not know which I think puts him in good company with a lot of Christians, you know, lay and clergy alike, saints and and otherwise, who who struggle with those same things, and and it it can be a source of comfort um, that he did, and that his his comic so clearly displays that. It's so true. I mean, Charlie Brown is the perennial loser, but at the same time, there is this persistent hope in Charlie Brown. And it's not a naive hope. It's a realistic and it's an authentic and deep hope that really, really is synonymous with the way that faith can operate in one's life and the way that Schultz on um, both intellectual and maybe even emotional levels at time could see faith working as well, that we don't have all the answers. There are certainly bad things that happen in this world, but that does not mean that all is lost. One can still have hope even in the face of the unknown. You know, I um I, I bought an anthology of peanut strips to review before before we had this conversation. Mm-hmm. The thing that it, I was struck by is how vicious the world Charlie Brown lives in is. Like like people, especially the the little girls in that strip are cruel to him really for no reason whatsoever. And they tell him things like he's, they, they do everything but tell him to go commit suicide. Mm. The very first peanuts strip is one where Charlie Brown is walking on the street and Shermie is sitting on the sidewalk and Charlie Brown is uh, walking his way. And Shermie says, Oh, here comes Charlie Brown. Good old Charlie Brown. How I hate him. Yeah. That's dark, man. The very first strip has Charlie Brown smiling while the kid is telling him, that he hates him, or while telling Patty next to him that he hates him, and that that meanness is a real is a real um, consistent thread throughout m- much of the uh, the Peanuts uh, franchise's lifespan. Uh, but the really neat thing that I love about the meanness and the cruelty um, is that while it speaks to the very real hardships that are that exist in our lives, like the, the really unfun and kind of nitty-gritty parts of our lives that are difficult to go through. At the same time, that fourth panel in the comic strip often provides a joke or a gag or a witty comment that that makes it still kind of okay. That the girls are mean to Charlie Brown, but at the end of the strip, he has some wacky comment or Snoopy has some weird facial expression that at the same time doesn't, it doesn't excuse or dismiss the, the hardship, but it still kind of makes it okay. And and I was I was thinking about the uh, there's a Sunday strip for Father's Day, where Violet is is telling Charlie Brown how much better her dad is than his dad. She's better <laughs> at tennis. He's better at golf. He makes more money. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Brown takes her to the barber shop. And he, Schultz's father was a barber too. He t- he takes her to the barber shop where his dad works and says, you know, no matter he he deals with some really unpleasant people, but every time I go in there, he smiles at me. Like that's that is that is really moving to me, but it's not sentimental, and it doesn't it doesn't like wash away all the ugliness that happens to Charlie Brown and presumably to his father on a daily basis. But there's some sort of connection that's possible between human beings and strips like that, right? And that 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 smile, the the idea that he walks in and his dad smiles at him, it's it's almost as if that is that that's enough. It doesn't mean that the trials and tribulations aren't there, but in some way that smile is all on its own, everything, that sure, things are hard, but 
but you also have a smile from your father. And that is um, this it's a really deceptively deep, even poetic way of getting the reader to think or to maybe even just feel the idea of hope in spite of daily frustration, grief and even loss. So, I mean, the strip is rarely sentimental and it's rarely preachy, but it somehow manages to get those those themes across, which is, I mean, that's really something. It really is. And Schultz himself really did not like overly sentimental strips or overly sappy, syrupy strips. And he also was really hesitant about becoming preachy himself. And so the ability for him to strike that that balance, kind of thread that needle in such a wonderful way is just really a credit to his um, his hardwired and his really trained expertise as as an artist. I remember him complaining. I remember reading an interview years ago of him complaining about Dennis the Menace and the uh, religiosity of Dennis the Menace. And Dennis is praying by his bedside. For some reason, that really made Schultz angry. Yeah, he really didn't like uh, praying by the bedside strips. <laughs> he thought they were a little bit over, overly sappy. But the irony is that Schultz himself had uh, had some praying by the bedside strips as well. Um, now, he tended to inject those with a little bit more uh, snarky humor than syrupy humor. Um, but Schultz himself um, could easily be criticized for at times, at times, not always, and not, I would say, the overall body of his work. But at times, he was maybe more sentimental than he realized he was being. Well, starting in the late 80s, he began to refer to himself as a secular humanist. A lot of hay has been made of that pronouncement. You argue in your book, people have generally misunderstood what he meant by it. So what is a secular humanist in Schultz's understanding of that term? Schultz's use of the term secular humanist has been probably the most explicit lightning rod in uh, over the last couple decades to view Schultz perhaps not even just as a secular humanist, but maybe uh, an atheist, uh, which are not necessarily the same thing. Um, they at times overlap, but they're not necessarily Charles Schultz's use of the term secular humanist came about in a time in his life where he was no longer attending church, so he was no longer quite as active in his church community, though he still kept in touch with his church friends. And Charles Schultz was using the term secular humanist in perhaps its most simple, simple way possible, in that for Charles Schultz, one did not have to be a member of a Lutheran church, one did not have to say a certain particular prayer in order to believe that one should do good things to, for one's neighbor, that one should just be a, a good person, that one should look out for one's brother and sister. And in that very simple, simple way, one could have a good ethic, be a good humanist without a religious standpoint. One could do it secularly. And in that very simple way, Charles Schultz used a term that was uh, perhaps a poor strategic choice uh, for his own personal biography's sake, um, but really spoke to his overall ethic of you should be doing good in the world. I can't imagine that figuring out what exactly he meant by that phrase was some sort of driving force behind this book, right? I mean, because that that's so famous and it flies so in the face of what Christians want to think about Schultz that it must have it, that must have been one of the things that motivated this project. Writing the chapter on secular humanism was absolutely one of the trickiest chapters to write because the author is always present when writing a book, but at the same time, that was a chapter where I had to make sure that I was being honest about my, uh, you know, where where I was in the question of interpretation, and making sure that as I tried to sort out what Charles Schultz likely meant by the term secular humanism, I wanted to make sure that I had strong evidence to support how I was understanding his his uh, descriptions. And so that was a very tricky um, chapter to write, and one that um, I spent a, a lot of time on because the question is such um, is such a uh, or a rich one in in terms of trying to understand how a man had um, really fought to include a reference to Jesus's birth in a Charlie Brown Christmas, but then later in his life was really uncomfortable with Christianese. And so sorting through those nuances was both a challenge and, like you said, a real opportunity for the book. It was absolutely a motivating factor. It was a question without a clear answer. And that's really why, what I wanted to provide in the book was maybe not a perfect answer, but some semblance of 
of a meaningfully coherent and hopefully historically accurate one. And I, I think you've done a real service to Schultz's religious fans in, in that sense, because that that quote is just bludgeoned on the uh, on in the internet, the world of the internet atheist. So I mean, it, it's good to have somebody add some complexity and nuance to the quotation. No, thank you. That was the goal, and um, there are family members who have um, who read the book. Well, the, the family read the book as I was editing it um, to make sure that I was not straying far from their interpretations of the man they lived with and they've responded some of his family members have responded very positively to the descriptions of uh, his use of the term secular humanism the way in the way i describe it and uh, that's that's for me a real as a historian a real vote of confidence for uh, the way i saw the pieces fitting together how much uh, how many changes did they have you make if you don't mind my asking they did not um they did not require uh, any significant changes to the book. They had some really helpful uh, clarifications here and there. But I was, I was really in touch with the family uh, pretty closely throughout the process. So uh, the family was, um, I believe many of the family members were um, pleasantly not surprised by what showed up in the book because the, what showed up in the book really reflected the conversations I had been having with them all along. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you can you can feel their presence here, and not just, just not just in the interviews. I mean that in a in a good way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I've been steering this conversation so far, but here at Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the final word. Uh, what haven't we talked about that you'd like our listeners to know? Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting about Schultz's work relative to religion is how he was able to point to specific political controversies uh, of the day that were also religious controversies. And so one of the, one of the neat things for me in writing the book was uh, being able to draw out some of these comic strips that may have been lost to history a little bit, such as one in the 1960s when uh, Sally comes home from school and they sneak behind, a, behind the window and then behind the couch and she simply says to Charlie Brown, we prayed in school today. And that was a strip that came right on the heels of some Supreme Court decisions about school prayer. And that is, um, for me, a really neat way of an artist in the mainstream media provoking the question of faith without spoon-feeding the answers to the listeners. And I think that's something that's a really a, a strong lesson for us in our contemporary age where questions of religion and politics often get really muddled and really hostile very quickly. Charles Schultz serves as a good historical example of how we can successfully broach the religion, broach the question of religion in public spaces and in public media in a way that um, that can provoke a good conversation as opposed to closing down doors or ostracizing. I find him to be a really good example of that historically. And he, he has, in some sense, his work has survived because... Because it doesn't try to preach at you, and thus it, it transcends uh, the politics of the era. A Charlie Brown Christmas really is an example of the really the wonderful way in which Schultz asked questions of his readers and his viewers. He did not ask questions in a way that required you believe a specific thing in the specific way that Charles Schultz believed. Instead, he simply asked the question, what might you believe about this subject? And for many years now, that continues to be a very powerful way of engaging readers and allowing spirituality to still have a real presence in our public life. We've been talking with Stephen J. Lind, whose book, A Charlie Brown Religion, Exploring the Spiritual Life and Work of Charles M. Schultz, is out now from the University of Press of Mississippi. There'll be a link to buy that book on our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.